Okay, good morning, everyone. We're studying Acts 20, which we've been doing for many sessions. And this is, I hope it's helpful to you. It's definitely helpful to me because I'm researching the biblical definition of the church and trying to be objective about what the Bible says the church is compared to what the church is understood to be through church history. What's that? Okay. All right. I'm going to continue. Um, the, um, The main thesis that I have, I I suppose it's controversial. I wouldn't know why, but it probably is. That Christendom and church history is understood since the death of the apostles up until this very time has been grounded in a misdefinition of the church that developed after the times of the scripture and the basic misdefinition is that the church is an institution that is self-perpetuating supposedly with the help of God. And so that self-perpetuating multi-generational building and politics oriented church is not the church defined in the Bible. That's my primary thesis. And it's not uh, sufficient to simply say that and then not provide the biblical definition as an alternative. I will also say this as we continue on this, that the basic categories that do define the church are known and taught by conservative scholars, and I heard them in seminary. Do you have a, okay. That it's so things like the visible church, the invisible church, the church universal, the church uh, triumphant, the church militant. These are terms that define the church in a biblical manner. And I'm not uh, debating that, but that's not what's practiced. And that's not what our ordinary human language parlance is talking about because um, the institution has become the primary focus. The institution, as I've said before, is like any other institution. It rewards whoever or whatever benefits and grows the institution. And that means that the people who do so and have administrative skills, compromise skills, fundraising skills, salesmanship skills, and so on, will become promoted so that they are in charge of the institution. And that's who will prevail. And that's what Eric and I have talked about a lot, lands us in a conservative seminary that's now teaching progressive emergent liberalism because the gospel with the narrow gate building on the rock a conversion 
scripture alone and so on will never produce the revenue or the resources to maintain a massive institution. And that's what is the dynamics on the scene of history. So that being said, we've been for many weeks in Acts 20, one of the most important uh, sections in Acts is Paul's address to the Ephesian elders happened at Miletus on his way to Jerusalem when the elders were called and he spoke to them. So now we're in a section about internal wolves, Acts 20, 30, talked about this last week. And I was in 1 Timothy 3 about Paul warning about false teaching in the church. The last section that we covered was on verse 3. No, verse 5. So I just realized, where are we here? That I had a slide for that, and I was on, so we're going to go to that slide. There we are. Strange doctrines abound. Remain on at Ephesus, this is to Timothy, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of the word of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And I think that verse 5 there gives a very good um, summary of what Christian ministry should be focused on. It isn't just fighting the false doctrine, which is utterly necessary, but the goal is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. The reason false doctrine must be fought is that false doctrines never lead to love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It leads to something else. And the fruit will not be good fruit when such things are um, on the table. Now, why would we say that? Why couldn't someone produce a loving congregation even though they have unbiblical doctrines if they just emphasize love? Well, the problem with that approach, which we've seen, isn't there a presidential candidate who just says, I, I believe in love? New age, love. <laughs> the flower ch children, love. Well, <laughs> that's uh, not uncommon. I grew up in a liberal church that believed in love. But the problem is life, because we live in a fallen world, requires decisions to be made between one idea or practice and another. Everything isn't emerging into a common loving whole with no future judgment. The fall is real. Humans are alienated from God. Sin is real. Deception is real. And love from a pure heart only results from a work of grace through the Holy Spirit 
God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, uh, through the means of grace, and doesn't happen just because somebody says love and wears flowers or whatever. All right, yes, uh, I, I, I'm curious in that verse, so is the goal of the instruction just love, or is it love the good conscience and the faith? Um, love from a pure heart. Th- and, that would be the source. Okay, and so the... the if the love, heart's not purified first by a work of grace, love will not be the agape love defined in the scripture. So does the, um, the good conscience... Um, yeah, so the basis means conscience. Or is that a, a, that, a separate me, goal? You know, let me... Uh, I, uh, that's a good question. I think the goal would be the whole, not just three goals, because I think goal is singular. I, I should have had my pr- Greek printout in front of me. So could you say then the love is the result of our sanctification, which gives us a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. The goal is what comes from the instruction. The instruction is biblical teaching. Strange doctrines, heterodidoskalos, simply means teaching. Hetero means outside of the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Heteros, other. And um, Paul starts here by saying he instructs certain men not to teach the other, which is not biblical. Now, we've been dealing with what is biblical in Acts chapter 20. And he gives them examples. Muthos. What's a, what's a myth? What's the difference between a myth and sound doctrine? What characterizes myths? Does anybody want to discuss that? Levon. No, it's not your fault, you Carly. You too early like me this morning. <laughs> um, um, I believe that myths are made-up stories, um, things from man's evil heart, things that we think up rather than what God has said in his word. Um, I think of the Roman Catholic Church. They got a lot of myths about Mary. Um, They say that the Holy Spirit and Peter and John, they all got together and watched her go up, assuming to heaven. I mean, these are myths. They have nothing to verify such Yeah, so you're saying that's a good point. Myth is in contrast to uh, objective history, verified uh, by witnesses. I think, oh, you got your own. Okay, go ahead. I, I think Romans 1 comes to mind, especially looking at like the Greek and Roman myths. A lot of times they would have a grain of truth or they would have their own creation myth that's kind of there, but not quite, mm-hmm. or they all had a flood story exactly. that was close, but not quite. And But it always boils down to assigning to the created things that which only belongs to God. And that really ties even over to, to what Levon was saying as far as elevating Mary to co-mediatrix or co-redemptress, it, it all boils down to the same thing, taking one little thing 
and setting that up as God instead of the one true God. That's a good point, Jessica. When, when I was studying in seminary, studied the uh, ancient religions of the Near East and the Middle East, and every known uh, society had some sort of a flood story. Why? Because there really was a flood. But when you read the flood stories of the pagans, and then you read Genesis, you immediately see there's a huge difference. Genesis is rational, it's objective, and it fits with the real world we live in, whereas the myths of the gods and demigods and the way things work. In fact, they have a story of the ark. The difference is their ark would never float uh, based on the dimensions of the way it's described. And so a myth is not grounded in objective historical reality. It's stories that have to do with gods and angels or spirits or goddesses and whatever that don't have to be verified by objective reality, whereas a sound doctrine and objective truth is grounded in the action of God on the scene of history that's verifiable and stands the test, as Eric's been laying out in, in a lot of his material. And we've seen the objective reality of the crucifixion of Christ, of his predict- predictions, of his resurrection. Why tell people that he appeared to many witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15 if all you need is a story that inspires you? You don't need witnesses for a story that inspires you. But if you're in a court of law, you need witnesses. Brian. Well, I was going to say that um, depending upon who it is that's saying something is a myth or not, it depends on their worldview. So if you're a if you're a if you have a biblical supernatural worldview, look, there's there's people that even that claim to be Christians that would say virgin birth, Noah's Ark, you know, all these other things, that's myth, mythological. You even, I think, when you went to your pastor, when you right when you became a Christian or before you became a Christian, didn't he say, "Oh, none of that stuff's true. That's all mythical," you know? And but the thing that the myths that some people claim to be myths are actually fact. Um, okay, you're you're right about that's true about the worldview. What was going on with the pastors who told me there were no miracles? because it was liberalism. And they were, he was trained, uh, that those, all of those pastors were older that told me that. They went to seminary about 1910, 1915, thereabouts, and were um, reacting to rationalism and uh, the denial of the supernatural that was going on. And they hadn't yet even delved into neo-orthodoxy. So they just simply said, there are no miracles. Jesus didn't walk on water. Jesus didn't turn the water into wine. These are why, so, so I asked, why are they in the Bible? These are stories to inspire us to be better people. 
Well, then what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to love everybody and go about and make the world a better place to live in. So then as I thought about that, as an unbeliever, I thought, why would me believing stories that in the Bible are presented as fact, but we know are not fact, but myth, why would that make me a better person? Okay, in my mind, I thought, I don't see how that's going to happen. And furthermore, it didn't seem right to claim that something is a certain way and then have the preacher say, well, we're supposed to take that as a story to inspire us. Well, that, see, that was liberalism. That's just flat-out liberalism. Neo-orthodoxy took a different approach. And so those older guys, I call them older, they're probably younger than I am now, okay? So back in those days, they're about my age. But they were the age of my grandparents who were born, who were born in the 19th century. The next, they, they were even behind the time because uh, neo-orthodoxy is already on the scene, but they hadn't gotten that yet. Neo-orthodoxy says we need to affirm the stories of the Bible, but we don't have to verify them. In other words, you have a blind leap of faith or the... Uh, what do they call verbal acts saying the creed saying that Jesus was raised from the dead would be uh, creating its own reality and therefore we're not going to deny the things but we're not going to claim you can use scientific evidence to verify them or typical approach to history is that that's very superficial but I think it's a pretty good Eric, why don't you address this? You know, I was kind of trying to remember when I taught through this passage. I think I remember one of the issues is when it says at the very end, but the f- goal of our instruction, if I recall, is the term goal telos. Yeah. Which would be, many of you have heard of the teleological argument that the idea of a design presupposes a designer. So the goal of the instruction is love from a pure heart. And the, the idea of the heart, I think Paul uses it as the Hebrews did, they knew that the heart pumped blood. So they used it metaphorically as we would. That team played with a lot of heart, right? But the idea of the heart primarily for the Hebrew is it's the center of the thought life. And the issue with the myths and the false teaching is they can't change the heart. They can't change how you think in order to th- that you would think godly. So think of uh, Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. So the mind is synonymous with the pure heart. And so the instruction that comes from Christianity, from the scriptures, transforms the way you think, your pure heart. But you also get a good conscience, as Bob mentioned, the sundesis, which is the faculty that determines what's right and wrong. But that faculty, the inner referee that determines right and wrong, has to be informed by something outside of itself. When you're a Christian, it's informed by the scriptures. So now it starts to function correctly, whereas Timothy and Paul addresses the idea of someone that has a seared conscience. Well, the seared conscience isn't properly informed by the scripture. It doesn't function properly. And of course, a sincere faith is one that trusts Christ, the promises, etc. Whereas if you have nothing but myths and endless genealogies, where does it lead you? It leads you to trust in what? 
there's no valid object of faith. And so that's, uh, I think the, the core of that is the pure heart, that we have right. love from a pure heart. That's the source of our love. It's, it's from thinking correctly, which comes from the instruction of the scriptures. And how does our heart ever become pure? Yeah, amen. By a work of grace. Yes, uh, Luann. This time, it's really Luann. <laughs> um, I have the Greek here, and so I can verify. Was it telos? Yes, telos. And then uh, instruction is interesting. I just got new glasses, and they're progressive, and where the sweet spot is has changed, so I'm sitting here trying to find it. Is anybody here old enough to have progressive lenses? Somewhere here I could see this. Go ahead, Luann. Well, I'm just thinking, too, when we talk about these myths. But, you know, we are living in myths right now with this, and I'll just use the term Marxist utopia, because they're trying to create this utopia, which is a myth. And to do that, they have to destroy everything in the world by calling it bad, evil, something, and they want to tear it down and um, remind us that we actually are God. We just need to be reminded of that. <laughs> I mean, it's just the whole thing is just a, a myth. Yeah, and you're absolutely no valid right. Object. It's a denial of the fall. Humans are not fallen. That's the big lie. You should be like God. They believe the lie and waiting for if whatever exists now is not heaven on earth, then we need another one of these revolutions so that everything will start evolving spiritually and morally toward heaven. And if we just take the fact of the fall, sin nature, born sinners, alienated from God, prone to evil, needing a savior, needing to be restrained, as God does through his means of providence, which includes civil government, national boundaries, Acts 17, Romans talks about this. You go back to Genesis, the table of nations. That is making it possible for humans to live on the earth, which is the scene in which we are to pro proclaim the gospel. Okay? And... The idea that I wrote a book about this on, on the emergent church is that uh, everything's evolving toward heaven on earth without future judgment. And so you're right, Luann. It's, just, it's a big lie. Man is not basically good. Allowing everybody to do whatever they want without restraint will not make life livable. So our gospel is telling people that they're all lost, alienated from God, facing God's wrath. God provided a solution through the sinless Savior, God the Son, the Holy One, the unique One, the only begotten, who lived a sinless life. He objectively, in history, died for sins, shed his blood, was raised on the third day, ascended to heaven before witnesses, coming again to bring judgment. It's a simplified formula, but it's true. There are more details. So therefore, we need Christ. The world thinks they don't need Christ, and they just need liberty to do whatever they feel like, and that'll be their salvation. Go ahead. Yeah, it just re reminds me what, what, what she said, Luann said, it could be summed up in that song, John Lennon, Imagine. Yeah. Reimagine. 
it's just making up a brand new thing, which yeah. is just false. It's a yeah. false scenario. I've, I mean, I've said Lenin is basically the founder of the emergent church. You know, if your name is Lenin, you might want to change it, because there's a couple <laughs> Lenins out there yeah. that, that really got it botched up, don't Imagine they? there's no heaven or no hell. <laughs> that was his contribution. Well, thank you for what you have just stated, but there's a part of a verse that bugs me. It's First Timothy 4... Seven, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, which is myths, fit only for old women. Why is that there? Uh, well, uh, that, I think the King James has old wives' tales. I think that would be uh, meaning... That doesn't mean old women can't know the truth and love the truth. All right. That's a generalization. But in their world, well, we run into these things, how the Hebrew scriptures viewed things isn't necessarily how we see things. Um, Well, if I say, if I give any more examples, it'll make more problems. So I'll just leave that one go. (laughs) But the point is, you could say the same thing, fit only for a bunch of frat boys. And you get the same result. It, it would be bad. The real point is that whoever we are, we need to be sober-minded and love the truth. So fables aren't really good for anybody. Okay, I think I have found my spot where I can read my Bible here with these glasses. And I have the Greek. Now the end, telos, as Eric points, the final, with the, the hope for outcome, telos, the end point, of the charge, parangelios. Okay, parangelios would mean, uh, would be a message, it would be like an exhortation. It's a little different than the word exhortation, but it's a strong message that people need to listen to. Is that how you would part? Yeah, alongside the message from God uh, is agape, love, ek, out of catharsis, which means cleaned, cleansed heart, cardios, and synodesis, agathes, which is good, and Faith. Okay, so I think that it applies to all. All of these things go together. Starts with the cleansed conscience. If you have not been born of God, the Holy Spirit hasn't cleansed you from the inside out. Then agape love, as defined in the Bible, cleansed and uh, um, cleansed heart. It's, it's all. It's all. It goes together. Let's put it this way. The means of grace we can divide up to study. It's like salvation, ordo salutis. You can divide it up to study and logically think what comes first. But in the real world of what happens to a converted sinner, it all happens at once. The instruction is to help us as Christians to live out what we're supposed to be as defined in the Bible. 
actually living out the gospel. And what facilitates that is our par on galos, our teaching forth clearly the truth, which includes a number of things. The factual data that comes from the Bible is true. The exhortation that we must believe and we must repent. And the instruction that would tell us what's evil and what's good. The difference between right and wrong. What's pleasing to God and what's displeasing to God. That's the goal. See, the, the, the reason I got into this to start with, we went back into Acts 20, is that the goal of the institutional church is different. The organic church, which is those attached to the head, Jesus Christ, every member is attached to the head. The analogy of the body is limited because in the body, the neck is attached to the head. But in the, in the church, the organic church, the little toe is attached to the head. Every member is essential. Every member is attached to the head and is in vital union with Christ. The institution is self-perpetuating. In order to grow, in order to prosper, in order to get bigger, and in order to spread, it cannot allow itself to be restricted by all these kind of matters. Because it won't work. And sometimes the issues become so blatant that then the institution itself splits as we're seeing right now with the United Methodist Church, which was the one I grew up in. They're having to decide because there are some that would want at least some traditional Wesleyan ideas and some want to go with everything's evolving into one and you got to get rid of Eric the binary reductionism. (laughs) Male and female is too many categories. Okay, go ahead. Well, we all know people that they're really good people. They uh, are loving people. They do good things in the community. Uh, They do a lot of charitable work, etc., etc. But unless those things stem from the blood of Christ, they're going to hell. So, and even Jesus says that the, the, the things that we do are the good works that we do. If it's not of the spirit, they're like filthy rags. Well, hell was the one doctrine they wouldn't tolerate in the, in the 1960s in the Methodist church. And even after my conversion in 1971, I went to the pastor they had in that church at that time and told him my testimony. And that's the one thing he wouldn't tolerate the idea that anybody's going to hell. Even though it's in every one of the creeds, they don't believe it. So why have a creed if you don't believe it? Yes, uh, Paul. I just want to make a comment about this verse. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I think so. Keep, keep it close. Okay, like this. all right, all right. Um, the last three words, a sincere faith, to me turns the whole, th- is a definition of the whole. I mean, you got to understand that. A sincere faith is either a talent that I have or something that's been given to me. And uh, faith always got to have a direct object. Whenever you see the word faith, you must know it has to have a direct, I have faith in this chair. I have faith in my car. I have faith. So in this instance, it's the faith in the cross, the empty tomb, the resurrection, the ascension. 
in that is a sincere God-given faith. And sincere meaning sinicere, the uh, Latin without wax or without anything artificial there, a sincere relationship to God through the cross. Then you read the verse, and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm looking at on, uh, the word there. It's kind of a complex word, anu. Uh, maybe you remember this from Eric from when you taught through. Anu pakrito, unfeigned. See, I think it's not pretentious or feigned or putting on a show. I think of the religious leaders in Israel that love to pray their piety before men, to pray. In fact, it talks about the one religious guy who prayed to himself. Well, that's doing you a lot of good. <laughs> prayed loudly to himself so everybody could hear his piety. So... When you have unfeigned faith, I think that's the King James of that, or sincere faith, it doesn't go away whether somebody else likes it or not. Okay? It isn't subject to the whims of the culture. It isn't going to be changed in order to preserve the status quo of the institution. And, and my basic thesis from all this is the institutional church isn't concerned about these things because they cannot produce them. And if teaching these things is harmful to the institution, then the teaching has to go away. I lived through that. I, in God's providence, I literally saw it happen. And then Eric came and saw the fruit not that many years later. The institution had to change and get rid of conservative scholarship in order to survive institutionally. So the teachers went, the people management came in, the social engineers came in, the, the people that would expand the boundaries so that anybody could be participant without wanting to hear solid Bible doctrine. And they went from three million in the red to 12 million into black. Wow. And then you go to the Board of Regents. Here's what we did. Good job. You get a raise. What else do you need? But what's gone? Oh, the guys that wrote the commentaries that I'm reading now, the they're gone. The truth is gone. That's, go ahead, Eric. You showed up after the yeah. change. A amen. And you know what's funny? Bob and I will often rebuke, rightly so, Bethel Seminary for that, for changing, going from teaching the Bible and the doctrines of Christ and teaching the emergent doctrine. But what's funny is Bob just mentioned it's the emergent doctrine, it's the falsehood that was popular. That's when they started making money. It was the droves the droves of the masses that went to our evangelical churches yeah. in the city, they wanted to hear the error, not the truth. So when the truth is being taught, there's crickets, there's hardly anybody showing up, and they're losing money. When the error comes, then the masses flood. i never forget when Doug Paget said we have to stop binary reductionism now. After he said that, people flooded to go get his book. And I'm sitting there in my seat. There's either sheep or goats. There's either heaven or hell. <laughs> You either like Barry Manilow or you don't. You know, all those types, all those things, you know. I mean, so, I mean, the world is binary. Uh, don't. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. I'm in the don't camp. All right. So that's kind of what, 
in God's providence, that just was such an eye-opener to me. I hope you see this. We're not just trying to be mean to everybody. There's nothing compassionate about failing to tell the truth to people who desperately need to hear it. What I needed wasn't to have the pastor tell me that I said, well, I'm studying science and the, the miracles of the Bible don't fit with cause and effect that I'm learning in science. Well, those things didn't happen. So they, they believed in rationalism, the uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. Okay, so then I'll go study science. I don't need church. But when the conversion happens when somebody confronts you. No, there is a hell, and that's where you're heading. And you need Christ. You need to turn to Christ, who is who he is. And I knew when God smote me to the heart that it was true. Absolutely true. Within a millisecond, I knew it was true. And I knew if I didn't repent, I'd go to hell, and I deserved it. And after that, does that mean now the Bible's blind faith because I took a leap? No. It's because God gave me a love for the truth and a hunger to learn more of it. And the feeder system for the particular group we've talked about was the biggest mega church in the Twin Cities. They used to be a Baptist gospel church, and now they got 22,000 members being seeker church. So there's all your students that are going to come up and keep the institution going, but they're not going to hear the gospel. So is anybody, if somebody can see this differently and be able to, if you want to debate or tell me that I'm missing something, can you foresee a way that the church defined as an institution, and it doesn't necessarily mean American version of what we call institution, this got started 200, 300 AD, whenever Actually, Constantine's conversion is almost the official beginning of it, but it probably happened before that. Self-perpetuating, creating layers of, of whatever it takes to survive. It almost always focuses on buildings, although I don't know how essential that is or not. It's just the institution has to survive. And whoever helps us survive will be rewarded. If there's a counter-argument, I'd love to hear it. Yes, go ahead, Rick. I don't have a counter-argument, but it reminds me of a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is radical, if you think about it. It pleased the Father to make the message of salvation repulsive to human beings. It's not something we want to hear. That's why it says, Jesus says, nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, drags him against his own will. We don't like the gospel. It's not natural to the natural man. The natural man hates the gospel. It's not what a little child doesn't want to eat vegetables. A little child wants to eat cupcakes and cotton candy. I mean, we just love sugar. That's, that's natural to the natural man. Um, broccoli is not natural to the natural man, but, but eating broccoli is good for you. The gospel is not, it's broccoli. The gospel is broccoli. Right. It's, 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 it's asparagus. It's, it's, it's vegetables we don't want to eat. 
but it's it's what we gotta hear. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it pleased God. And this is what's radical: is that please God, God set it up this way, that the gospel's repulsive to people. Yeah. So only God, it's only possible with God that anybody believes it. I would just describe one thing slightly different. When God drags us, it's not against our will. It's at, at the moment he converts us and our will changes too. In other words, the moment I knew it was true, um, Diane had been to this retreat where they were going around and sharing the gospel and stuff, and we'd been debating about this. And she was told that she had to get me to say the sinner's prayer or something like that. You have to pray after me. But, the, and I was said, okay, I've had enough of this. I got to get out of this religious stuff. When the moment that was true, and I knew it was true, based on what the scripture said, the rivers are going to turn to blood. Now that's the real win I'm over to Christ first. But it worked because God used it. I ran. I said, I'll pray right now. So it's an instantaneous change. So my will was as forceful against the gospel as it can be, just like Saul of Tarsus. And when he's, uh, when he's on the ground, he says, who art thou, Lord? It's just instantaneous. So I wouldn't have come at all. But my point is, is that the natural man yeah, cannot the, receive the things yeah, of the spirit the natural of God. The foolishness goes to the redeemed man, the right. moment of conversion. That's the work of the spirit. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the Holy Spirit. He can't even tell where it came from. John 3. Right. It's like the wind. Yeah. Where does it come from? Where does it go? We can't see. What can we see? A conversion. A conversion. A conversion is not a religious consumer taking an oath. Right. All right? A conversion is redemption. It's everything that's involved. Loving what you used to hate. Hungering for what you didn't want. Right. Searching the scriptures. What should I do? I, I started reading the Bible. I had trouble with the Old Testament. Somebody said, read the Gospel of John. Okay. Wow, look at this. And I've been reading it ever since. Go ahead. I'm just thinking about this and, and where you, you guys came from with uh, those good teachers that you had starting out at Bethel. How, how do you end up uh, with, with a good institution that teaches biblical doctrine? Um, I mean, these guys have to be paid and all that kind of thing. And so it seems like what ends up happening is you know, these these institutions go for the, the, the route that's going to make them money, and the money becomes the dominant thing in order for the institution to grow. So it's almost like you, you want to... I, I don't know... I don't know what your thought is now of seminaries. If seminaries are uh, a necessary thing, or if... Uh, how do you keep things small where money isn't the main concern, and how do you pay good teachers yeah. like that? You know, you asked some great questions, and I thought about that. The one in question, by the way, had already been into neo-orthodoxy before I got there and pulled back from it. Okay, so they'd gone to neo-orthodoxy, and then there was pushback, and then Millard Erickson came along, who's Green Monster, we had to read. There was kind of it had good, it had what you needed to learn. Uh, and then 
a, cons uh, a provost came in who wanted to go full tilt with solid exegetical teachers. And they brought in the people that I had, which would be Robert Stein and Daniel Block, uh, and eventually Versaput, uh, Brooks. Just, uh, it, was, it was a joy. I couldn't wait to get there. Massive library. So the necessity would, to have scholarship, you need a library, you need teachers, you need a system where somebody makes sure you're studying the right things and you become proficient in it. But the churches that are feeding the students to the college and then to the seminary changed about that time. And because in order to go from this one particular church, which was now the biggest one, went from 400 people, I know a guy that was going there, to 22,000. But they did it by getting exegetical Bible preaching out of the pulpit. And I have a, a guy I still know, I don't see him only every so many years, was in the church when it happened. And they just, all of a sudden, the Bible went out and they started having story time for the sermon. And where is it going to come from? I don't have a good answer. I do think, though, that a local church that gathering together can help young people. Logos Bible software is a great tool. You still need guidance, but everything that I was accessing at that library, I can now get right from here. But I know what to look for and where to look for it, and I have the ability and others, not just me, to see what is a good reading and what isn't. But the reason we're doing this right here in this class is to have the whole family of God be trained and not just somebody who's going to be a professional preacher. I want you to have the tools. And that's why we're doing this here. Um, because there's no such thing as a person who shouldn't be trained for, equipped for the work of the ministry. Including the elderly ladies. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Yes. This is a side note, but if you do have Logos, which I do, they're putting out excellent training videos right now. So I've had Logos for several years, and I'm actually learning how to use it well right now, and they're teaching you how to do Greek word studies. So if you have it, it's actually worth taking the time to watch those videos. But as far as seminary goes, I was thinking of Second Timothy 2 and what Paul tells Timothy, and, it, and it's not send them to seminary, but uh, and not that seminary is necessarily a bad thing, but what he tells Timothy, and these things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what we have is elders in a church committing the faithful teaching of God's word to faithful men in the church and raising up the next generation of elders and Which, pastors. Right, and Timothy was, that's why Timothy is... These epistles are what they are. He was a person like that. Yeah. That doesn't guarantee the outcome because of the sin nature. Because look at all the trouble they had. Yep. From your own selves will come wolves, yes. not sparing the flock. So there's no panacea 
there's just faithful teaching, correcting error, patience, fruit, and fighting the fight in your own situation by God's grace with the tools God gives you. That's what we have. That's what anybody has. The institution sucks all of the life out of everything and becomes an end in itself. And uh, it, it will be run by the dignitaries who are the descendants of the important people who founded the institution. It will become genetically um, for, uh, forwarded on in history, not spiritually through conversion. And so who are some of the top people? Well, when I wrote a letter rebuking somebody who would come and teach. Turned out she was a dignitary in that denomination. I didn't even know it. That provost was mad. I had stepped on a, something really bad. And it was just psychobabble coming in because that's what this dignitary was in. I, I don't think we're out of bounds saying the institutional church is not the biblically defined church. Uh, Jessica hit on something, the idea of faithful men. Being faithful is the key issue. What's interesting is the role of the minister, the role of the Christian is to be faithful to the revealed word of God. Amen. One of the problems that I saw in seminaries is they reward novelty. So, for example, if someone's going to do their Ph.D. program, they have to come up with something novel, in oh, a yeah. sense, in their dissertation to add to the knowledge. Now, the idea behind a true seminaries, they want you to be novel in coming up with something that is actually revealed, but it's very quickly turned into novelty that never was revealed. And so, whereas our goal, yes, Bob and I, and the elders at Gospel of Grace, our goal is to be faithful. The goal, for example, um, Northwestern brought in, they got rid of a man who's faithful to the scriptures. He doesn't bring in the money. To, to He's the head of the Bible department. They bring in a man named Michael Weiss, who um, he is the expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls. He comes from the University of Chicago. I have some theological issues with him, but he's novel. He brings in the money, the prestige, and all of a sudden they get more money because of the novelty, not because of the faithfulness, just as Jessica read from 1 Timothy 2. So that's one of the things that I think really hurts the seminaries as well. Yeah. And it's exactly why Bob is saying we got to do this at the local level. It's got to be an elder-run church. It has to be an organic church, not one that is simply the institution. The institution, yeah. Right. So, by the way, the novel thing, in other words, if you're going to publish a theological journal article, it's got to go somewhere with theology. It's not always bad. Exactly. Like that uh, one that we read on Perry Day. Yeah, helping us understand what's really Yeah, good. if it's helping us understand Scripture, it's good because there's, there's data we have now because of the discovery of these ancient documents like Dead Sea Scrolls or better understanding how language works. But novel being something outside the faith is harmful. Yes, and then I got to... Let's get through you this were looking for here. somebody to push back on your idea, so I'm going to semi-push back. Okay, push okay. back. And I, I basically agree with your thesis, but there are people being saved in the institutional church. Okay, so, good point. Okay, so if you have a church that's a non-institutional church and you focus on 
preaching God's word and you're not overly concerned with paying all the bills of a massive building and you're not overly and you're not concerned about church growth you put that into the Lord's hand okay. to grow the church uh, there's nothing wrong with people getting saved in an institutional church okay let me that's a very great point and part of what's influenced my thinking was going places when I, I wrote the book on emergent and on before that on uh, Rick Warren, Purpose Driven. But here's what I saw in some of the travels. Um, the people you're talking about who came to Christ in these big groups, they're looking for one another. Okay? So here you have 3,000 or 4,000 or whatever, and there's a few of God's elect there. Okay? And, and I use that term now. Some people don't like it, but the Bible, I didn't make up the term. The fact is, they find each other. And they get together and they start studying the Bible. Say, well, look at this. And they, they pray for one another and they help each other and pray for their children and how their lives are going. And there may be thousands and they have a little handful of a dozen Okay, they may have been there when they came to the Lord, but as soon as they do, they have a whole different set of priorities than they did before. Okay, the leadership, if those persons get too pushy about it, will say the same thing to them, because I heard this from so many. We think you would be happier in another church. Okay, I heard that California... Uh, we were in Barbados, and we talked to people. We were different we, wherever you may go. And why? Because they're not going to change this massive superstructure because of the needs of 20 people, maybe. They're not going to do it because the rest will become outraged because they want the programs. And if you're thinking the programs of the institution is the way to go because it attracts the most people, I, again, just looking at experiences, someone came from the biggest church in the denomination that I went to Bible college in and said to me, I go to such and so church and my church isn't meeting my needs. Well, somebody else had testified to me about the same church and said to me, our church has every program but the space program. <laughs> okay? So I'm thinking, every program but the space program, my church isn't meeting my needs. And that person was looking for more, better counseling, different programs, different events, different this, that, and the other thing. So the response, what's the correct response? We need to search the scriptures to see what every born again person, male or female, needs. What do those who are part of the organic church attached to the head, whatever their gifts may be, whatever their past may have been, whatever else may be true about them demographically, what does every Christian 
defined that way, me. Okay? Is it ever bad to have love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith? Is that going to harm a Christian? No. Well, the, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So someone says, my church has every pro- program but the space program. And someone says, my church isn't meeting my needs. So I'm thinking, well, there's no use starting more programs. If they were meeting needs, you wouldn't have that kind of testimony from people because they're, they're defining needs in a different way than the scripture does. We need the Lord. We need the work of the Spirit. We need the fruit of the Spirit. We need Christian virtues. We need help in our time of trouble from God. We need to love and care for one another. And we need to avoid being Job's comforters. We need to avoid spiritual technology that's going to solve problems. Jessica and I just did a recording yesterday, and that's kind of what we focused on. Paul's thorn in the flesh. Everybody focuses on what it was. We don't know. But what we're supposed to focus on is why he had it. And God told him why. Keep him from exalting himself. My grace is sufficient. Is there such a thing as a Christian attached to the head, sins forgiven, we all have problems, we live in a world that hates us, who can't hear the word, my grace is sufficient for you. Therefore, I can be content with my weaknesses. There's not enough programs in the entire world to get rid of the weaknesses we all have. But one thing we do need is one another. Different people have different strengths, different grace, gifts, and things they can do. We need one another. Everybody has family problems. Everybody has health problems eventually. Everybody has difficulties and sorrows because this is an age of uh, a lot of sorrow and a lot of issues, but we need one another. So, dear ones, the institutional church is going to create the programs, the positions, the priorities to keep itself functioning by gaining new religious consumers under their orb. If there's some other way around it, I don't know what it is. Yes, Brother Steve. Yep, the other way around it for us is to keep doing what we're doing. And I just it further down in Second Timothy it fifteen it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. This this is the AUG degree. This is what we're working on. Approved unto God, the AUG degree, and that correctly handling is to cut a straight line. I thank you, Bob and Eric, for what you're doing. I think I'll bring my old glass. Thank you. I'm going to bring my old glasses when I teach Sunday school. I'm sitting here trying to find a focal point. I had those verses in here. Thank you. Um, I promise you, whoever you are, you'll never, ever regret having believed the truth of the word of God shared it with others, taught it, and lived it out. 
you'll never regret it. No one will, who's born of God will ever say, I wish I hadn't really believed the Bible. <laughs> no preacher will ever think, I wish I hadn't thought the Bible so clearly. You won't do that. That's, to my shame, that's what led me to Bible teaching because I had a lot of regrets over a lot of things, but I don't have any over teaching the Bible because God's word doesn't change. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Pray for Pastor Eric as he teaches us from, the, from your word. May we listen with faith and critically examine everything that's taught from the scripture so that we can make applications that are valid. And we pray that you would give us wisdom and grace as we go about living out our lives in you, with you, with one another in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, dear saints.